You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm very pleased to be bringing you this conversation recorded live at the Belfast Comedy Festival a couple of weeks ago with Mr. Tim McGarry. Tim, you may not know if you're listening outside Northern Ireland as he is uh, he's a big cheese in Belfast and environs, uh, but he's not as well known outside of it. He cannot walk down the street in Northern Ireland without people shouting catchphrases at him from the very provocative and very successful uh, TV show Give My Head Peace, uh, a sort of sketch, well not quite a sketch show, and not quite a soap. We'll find out a little bit more about it um, soon. But some really fascinating stuff from Tim about how he and the rest of the Hole in the Wall gang with whom he started at college um, were among, among, if not the first people to tackle the political situation in Northern Ireland during the Troubles and to make sketches and get laughs at the expense of both sides in it and to make sketches about the paramilitaries and, uh, and to make to make humour out of the violence there. And it's an interesting kind of bounce on from some of the uh, the topics that we raised in the Michael Legg episode a few weeks ago. Um, I'm really pleased with this conversation. Thank you so much to Tim for coming along and thanks to John and everyone at the Belfast Comedy Festival for having us. This is the fascinating, very wise and very funny Tim McGarry. So, Tim, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you to our audience coming tonight. I really appreciate uh, all the people who couldn't afford to get tickets for John Bishop. Uh. <laughs> oh, that is a painful laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so, in terms of... Uh, let's, let's talk about who you are. For the sake of people at home or listening around the world who right. might not be aware of who you are, can you... Uh, give us a quick rundown of your standing in the world of comedy. Uh, anybody outside Northern Ireland won't know who I am. Uh, I'm vaguely famous in Northern Ireland. I'm kind of at the level of fame of sort of Alan Partridge uh, in Northern okay. Ireland. Okay, uh, Alan Partridge as if he were a real person. That level of fame. Okay. Yeah, you're not Steve Coogan, no. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm fairly famous in Northern Ireland because uh, I've been doing comedy full time. Oh, fuck me, the lights have worked. Well done. Oh, well. Sorry, we're, I shouldn't have sworn. <laughs> The lighting guy just left, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, I uh, uh, was famous here for writing and being in a well-known sitcom called Give Me a Head Peace, which ran for 73 episodes in 10 years. And then since then, I've done bits of stand-up, uh, one-man shows. I'm also famous for a show here called The Blame Game, which I am the chair of The Blame Game, and I... Uh, the chair of the panel on that it goes out. It is fairly popular now and is a comedy topical show that goes out, is recorded on a Thursday and goes out on a Friday night. 
And when you say, uh, we'll start maybe by looking at Give My Head Peace, because when you say it was very popular, I think it had a 50% audience share. Yes, it was massive. I mean, it was genuinely is... massive at one stage. At one stage, we used to beat EastEnders. Uh, if it was outside Northern Ireland, I'd be a fucking millionaire. <laughs> Several times over. It was massive here locally. Now, the thing about it was, it was a local show for local people and designed as such and was meant for a Northern Ireland audience. Uh, I'm very, very proud of it. There's 73 episodes. There's a couple of turkeys in the 73 episodes, but they're not that many, you know, and every single episode is now up on YouTube. And now and again, we go and look back at some of them, and, and I'm guaranteed, you're guaranteed at least two absolute belting laughs in half an hour in a sitcom, which I think is not a bad hit rate for a show of that, of that style. I've watched a, a good few uh, clips and one or two episodes of that online, and... Um I was struck by the there is it's fairly dense in terms of its politics, its political references. That's only because you're English. Well, exactly. Yeah, from, from my perspective, <laughs> and um, and yet there are there are really funny moments in it, and there are moments where, as a as an English viewer with uh, without the uh, the kind of the history texts and without the names of the local politicians, the local characters, whatever. Um, I was still able to really enjoy it because there's a great deal of humanity in it and you can almost, um, you can kind of work backwards from the, fa- from the rhythm of a laugh and go, oh, that must mean that that person is on that side. Yeah. Uh, it actually, it came out of one sketch. <laughs> we did, we used to do a sketch show, the Hole in the Wall Gang. We did, we started off doing sketch shows for charity. Uh, myself and the two guys who I do most of my writing with, I write on my own, but also write with two other guys, Damon Quinn and Michael McDowell, met at university. Damon Quinn had written plays and stuff at school, and we met, and he wrote, we wrote a couple of sketch shows for charity and for Oxfam and Amnesty International, and then we got quite good at it and thought we could make some money ourselves here. Um, and then we used to do a sketch show, and at the end of it, we did this sort of, our, our sort of, uh, the, the, finale bit was a, a sketch called Too Late to Talk to Billy and Patty about love across the barricades in the Terror Triangle which was a piss take of all the awful Northern Ireland plays and dramas that were mainly made by English people about Northern Ireland <laughs> that then went into a radio show and was broken up we, we wrote that into, into a half hour, it became a half hour as part of a, a radio show called The Perforated Ulster uh, and then that won an award and then we got a pilot called Two Seas Fires in a Wedding which went out in 95 and then the, the series went off the back of that. But the original characters were pastiches of really bad English plays and films like The Crying Game and The Patriot Game and Harry's Game and all these bloody... There were lots of games, if I remember correctly. And they always had terrorists with twitches and, you know, and they all had bad Northern Ireland accents and everybody in the Republican movement was going to get... There was always a bomb at the end of it and all that sort of stuff. So the original idea was to take the piss out of that Went very well, and it was a playwright called Martin Lynch says, do you know what, actually, you've, you've created a soup here. <laughs> you've created a cross, we've created characters that are with two families. It's, it's, a, it's a Romeo and Juliet thing, you know, this classic sort of thing. Uh, a Protestant family and a Catholic family, and the Protestant uh, nephew marries the Catholic daughter and all of that. And so that, the link between the two families. And he said, you've actually created a soup. And it was us, it was him sort of going, God, right enough, there could be something in this. So we sold it to the BBC on the basis of, you know, there's, there's more in this. And, uh, 10 years later, we got 73 bloody episodes out of it, which isn't bad now. So it, let's, let's start from that perspective then of you and, uh, Mike, Michael and Damon yeah. at college. What was the what was the comedy landscape that you were operating in at that time? There, there was nothing. I mean, there was literally nothing in Northern Ireland from the 19, early 1970s. There was a guy here called James Young, uh, was a big theatre actor, uh, and he had his own TV show, which was very broad brush comedy. He died in 1974. 
And between 1974 and the late 80s, mid-80s, late 80s, to ourselves and then Paddy Keatley coming along, there was, there was no comedy. There was no comedy clubs. There was no comedy from Northern Ireland, about Northern Ireland. There was literally, literally nothing, apart from one guy called Charlie Warmington in the BBC who did a programme called Northern Lights, and he kind of kept the flicker of, uh, of satire going. Uh, and we, we didn't, I mean, it's not, you know, we, aren't we brilliant? We, we decided to get involved in comedy. We, we kind of accidentally fell into it because we all grew up, I grew up with uh, late 70s. So I grew up with um, Faulty Towers, not the nine o'clock news, Python films, things like that. So when we first started doing sketches, we were doing crap sketches with English accents and, you know, lots of props and <laughs> thinking we were sub-Python, you know. And doing we, them with English accents? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's joyous. Because that was, that was your, that was your con- point of contact was doing, was, you know, uh, was Python and not the nine o'clock yes. news. This and, is you know, how you do a yes, sketch. If a man you, you, you into, a man in a shop is an English man in a shop. <laughs> yes. it, was, it was kind of bizarre. Uh, we started intermingling a few local references, and the, the best thing that happened to us was we did a disastrous show in the Edinburgh Festival in 1987. Okay. Awful show. But it was partly because of, at that time we were, we'd done bits and pieces of show, bits and pieces of comedy, but there were about 12 of us involved, and we thought, oh, we'll go over to Edinburgh for a laugh, and half the people there were there for a bit of a piss-up, and the show was awful. It, was, it, it had good bell elements to it, but the show was... Uh, uh, I, I, I still remember the review to this day that we got in the Scotsman saying the Hole in the Wall gang show started well with an interesting tableau about a tortured peasant. Then the torture turned to the audience. <laughs> As the Hole in the Wall gang went through a series of sketches that seemed to take forever to set up and weren't very funny anyway. <laughs> and then a very nice man at the Pleasant Theatre called Christopher Richardson uh, saw the show and said, you guys need some help. He introduced us to a uh, gang of people called the Bodgers, as they were then. Mm-hmm. Became absolutely Jack oh, Doherty. Yeah, okay, yes. Jack Doherty, Murray Hunter, came and saw our show, said, come and see our show, and you'll see the difference. And they were fucking superb. They were in the, the Pleasance Cabaret Bar, five of them, no props, no English accents, fast-paced, bang, 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 joke, 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 songs, routines, dance routines, blah, just blew us out of the water, but they gave us a couple of very good pieces of advice. They said, number one, there's about 12 of you in the cast. You need to cut down. Half of you aren't, clearly aren't interested. Stop doing English accents. <laughs> Write about what you know. Because we had done some sketches about Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland politics, and they were the ones that were, we felt most comfortable with and went well. So they gave us the piece of advice. We then came back for, from Edinburgh with our tails between our legs going, right, okay, who's in to take this seriously and who's not? And we downsized radically and uh, became five. We became the hole-in-the-wall gang. Okay. Uh, and so in that environment in which there, was no, there were no clubs, there were, where, were you, where were you gigging? Where the, were you able to rehearse in the, terms of... We, we were very lucky. The, 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 uh, the Ulster Hall had a little theatre attached to it. It was owned by the council called the Group Theatre. And they were brilliant. There was an amateur theatre. You could literally, if you were an amateur, you could hire it for literally 40 quid. It was a 250-seater theatre. Absolutely beautiful wee theatre. And we used to hire it to do the charity shows that we'd done in the mid-80s for okay. Oxfam and various people. And then we, we uh, then were able to hire it so, you know, at a very reasonable rate. But there were no clubs. There was no... And uh, in the mid to late 80s, there was nothing really, genuinely nothing here. And in terms of when you say you were making sketches about what you know, they, were they always or were they often kind of politically oriented or kind of socio-politically oriented? Yeah, I, I, they were. A lot of them were. A lot of them were just silly sketches, but we, we were involved. We were not actively involved in politics, but we, we, were, we talked about what we saw on the news and what happened. Northern Ireland is a kind of a bizarre little society on its own. I keep saying partition work. The south of Ireland and the north of Ireland are completely different 
come out of the different newspapers, different radio, different senses of humour. We, we have a different experience. We have a different experience from the rest of the UK. Mm. And we started talking about things that were on the news in Northern Ireland, politicians who were on the news in Northern Ireland, politicians that everybody in the room in, in a gig in Northern Ireland would know, but people outside wouldn't know. And we started to talk about them, and we started to have a go at the paramilitaries, and we started to have a go at the politicians in a way that hadn't really been done in the last you know, 15, 20 years of the Troubles. I just want to focus on that sentence. We started to have a go at the paramilitaries because <laughs> that's not something that's come up on the show ever before. Talk to me, talk to me about that and about what it felt well, like to be, I mean, to be in a situation like were all of you thinking, right, let's write a sketch about the paramilitaries or were some of you going, maybe this isn't such a great idea. But what, what did that feel like in, in the room? In the room, genuinely, when we started doing it, we, we were genuinely scared. We were genuinely frightened about, you know, what's the reaction going to be to this? If you have a go at... We used to have a go at the IRA, and uh, we, did, we did one sketch in particular, which was a meeting of the IRA and discussing legitimate targets. What is a legitimate target? And it was a basic escalation-type sketch because they, they murdered all sorts of weird people. And they said, what a, so the head of the IRA came in to speak to the lads and tell them what was a legitimate target. And they said, well, any British soldier. And they said, also any RUC officer, obviously. And go, yes, okay. In fact, anybody who supports the British war machine. And, and then it went into sort of a milkman, uh, people who deliver milk to the British forces, uh, Australian tourists, anybody who happens to be passing by a British base. And the list got longer, 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 longer. And then they ended up, well, everybody's a legitimate target, apart from people in the IRA, and the guy was, yes, uh, everybody is a legitimate target, apart from people in the IRA, oh, apart from the informers and the touts in the IRA, who are obviously legitimate targets. And that, you know, at the time, that was kind of, you know, that was kind of daring and a bit scary and stuff like that. And we also did stuff about Ian Paisley. And previously, Frank Carson, people had done Ian Paisley, but basically done Ian Paisley as a loud voice and not else, nothing else. Mm-hmm. We were having a go at Ian Paisley, not just for having a loud voice, but for being a bigot and for putting forward policies that were in our view, basically supporting the, the political status quo and, and, you know, fermenting trouble rather than helping the situation. And, the, and uh, it's a shame that people on the podcast won't be able to see the sort of glint in your eye at the moment <laughs> in talking about that. What was it, do you think? Was, it, was there any one individual in the group that was pushing for that kind of material more than any no, that, other? That, that was kind of weird. The writing process is kind of organic. We used to write on our own and then separately and then come together as a threesome after Edinburgh, when, when we were literally, the Bodgers told us to rewrite our show, Damon Michael and myself went to a pub and started rewriting the show. Literally halfway through the, the two-week run, we wrote a show, rewrote half the show, and, and it, it improved vastly. Uh, so we started then, the three of us as a group, sat down and would go, right, who's got an idea, and you know, what, do we, what do you think about this? So as a threesome, as a unit, and there was kind of protection in that, possibly, you know, the three of us were writing as one unit. And you also you have the extreme value of instant editing, uh, of, with three people, you know, if you have the, the great thing, if you write a joke and two people like it and one person hates it, it's in. Uh, if two people hate it, it's not in. But you also have somebody on the outside go, hold on a minute, you know, you, you don't go, you don't go off on a wee track in your own thinking this, this joke, this line of, this line of humor is going to go blah, 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 and, and take it to the nth degree because you've already got somebody on your shoulder saying, hang on a minute, guys, what about we go that direction, not that direction, try that direction. So that was, it, it, when we were starting to write stuff about the troubles and starting to talk about what was outside and what was happening in the news, that was kind of organic and just, and it got a great reaction. I think that was, you know, the comedy, the thing about comedy is that the, the reaction is instant. There's no hiding place. You know, if it's not funny, you know, it's, you, there's nowhere you can go. So, uh, well, let's talk about the reaction then. What, do you remember the first time that you performed publicly 
some of that material about par- paramilitary. It, was, it must have been in the in the group theatre where we we did some stuff about about paramilitaries and about Sinn Fein and about loyalist paramilitaries and stuff. And and was, was that all in like the one show? It's like right, oh yeah, is, no, no, no there would have the... been a whole lot of sketches, yeah, okay. like, bits and pieces, uh, and. The reaction we got was kind of, yeah, fucking great, about time. And we realized we were tapping into a sort of kind of war weariness that had settled into the trouble started in sort of 69. But the early mid-80s to late 80s, you know, people kind of said, this isn't going to ever end. This is the same things happening again and again. It's kind of cyclical. But there hadn't been any humor about it. There had been, there had always been plays, there had always been books, people writing poetry about the troubles, but nobody had ever taken the piss out of these people or had a go with them. And did you find, I mean, were there ever any elements where you would, in the same way that you might write a sketch and try it out and the audience don't really go for that one, were there ever times when the audience wouldn't really go for a particularly barbed or particularly kind of dangerous feeling sketch? Occasionally they got the, they got the message wrong. Okay. Uh, because occasionally, because I remember one time, that was a particularly bad time, I can't remember what was usual riots and marches and stuff, there was one particular gig we did in Derry where we did a piss take of the Republican movement and Jerry Adams, and there was a band here, called, a Republican band called the Wolf Tones, and we did a piss take of that called the Jerry Adamses, and they were, they'd written all these songs about, you know, peace, but they were really, every single song was nasty and Republican and all. And every song that was meant to be a piss take, the audience were going, yeah, fucking right, Tim, get stuck into them, and go, no, 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 hold on a minute. <laughs> yeah. Got the wrong message here. We are, we're taking the piss out of these guys. Sure. You know? Did that happen, but very, very occasionally, only very occasionally. I'm just wondering whether, like, the, the, the pressure valve, the release, that you can get from comedy when people laugh in the room, you know, if, in, in, not even necessarily in a political context, but whenever a comic attempts a daring joke with some element of risk to it, and you get that relief of the performer going, okay, they're going with it. If, if, you hit a, you know, if you hit a bum note, if you do a line that doesn't get a laugh, and the subject matter is scary, that's almost like a shock comic doing yeah. a shocking line and not getting a laugh... And suddenly the weight of what they've said is suddenly appraised under a much colder light. Yeah. yeah. Was that, I mean, was that ever a, an well, issue? We, we, we had an advantage <laughs> and that we'd done some stuff on radio. We did a radio show called Talk Back, uh, which was a topical radio show, a bit like the one show, only better, and on radio. And uh, <laughs> they did a wee five-minute comedy piece at the end of that. And um, that kind of increased our audience. So there was no audience there at the time, but that increased our audience from 30 or 40 people coming to see us in the Greek theatre to 250 people coming to see us. So some of the stuff we'd tried on radio without seeing the whites of the eyes of an audience. Yes. But okay. when they came, they kind of knew. So I'll give you one example. There was an organisation called the, the Official IRA who had a ceasefire in 1972 and were supposed to have disappeared. And in the early 80s, they, there was rumours that they were still about and they were kneecapping people and threatening people with money. And they had a political wing called the Workers' Party and the Workers' Party you say, official IRA does not exist, doesn't exist, I promise you it doesn't exist. So we did a sketch on uh, Talkback, said uh, the official IRA have issued a statement today denying that they exist. <laughs> they say anybody who continues to insist that they do exist will be severely dealt with. <laughs> and the mere fact that they don't exist doesn't mean you can stop paying the protection money. So and one of those, that, was, that sound of tone, was the kind of tone of stuff, and we were yeah. getting approval from, you know... The, Without, as I say, without doing it in front of an audience, we, we knew that, that this was hitting a hitting a mark because people were coming up to see the show and see what we would do live. And, then... and and was there any fallout from it? Did you ever feel that you would be targeted? Were you ever? Was there any suggestion that you know? Would any of you ever taken aside and said, "Well, look, so and so says this might not be a great idea." Uh, 
No, well, yes and no. I mean, we, we were, in the early days, yes, we were genuinely nervous, but then something else happened, which was that we, we became vaguely famous just because we were making jokes about the Troubles, so we got more famous than we really ought to be. And you literally got English journalists going, my goodness, they're telling jokes about the Troubles. Aren't they marvellous? They must be brilliant. I said, we're just having a laugh here, mate, you know. So some English journalists took it very seriously. We were interviewed in Channel 4 and all sorts of bits and pieces in Channel 4 News and English journalists and things like that. Said, Isn't it marvellous? Despite the bombs, they're laughing and laughing amid the, the rubble and the, and the barbed wire and all that sort of crap. And we were going, we're, like, we're just speaking to the punters out there. They, they know what we're talking about. They know what level we're on. We, we only had one rule when it came to doing the comedy. We said we'd never, ever make a joke about a, a specific incident where somebody's been killed or injured. Okay. So you never make an incident. So you don't make an incident. You don't make it. For instance, I'll give you an for this terrible week around, say Las Vegas. You wouldn't talk about Las Vegas and that particular. You would. You could talk about gun control. You can talk about you know the politics around it, but you would never particularly mention. And there was a lot of stuff going on on murders and bombings and this, that, and the other. But you don't actually mention a specific incident. But you can talk about the rationale behind that, the political beliefs behind that, the excuses people give behind that, the political reaction to that. Uh, and that was kind of the only rule. Apart from that, everything was fair game. So this is Tim. Thanks, as I said to Tim, for coming along. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think um, I think there was. Yeah, we will discover in a little while after, as we go back into it, um, his uh, accusations of one of my questions as being wanky, and uh, and I've left it in. I think if I could, I could, I felt craven about it, and I thought well, I could delete that bit. But actually, the the point that arises from that issue, as you will hear, I think is worth uh, talking about, and it is interesting to hear my preconceptions as a person outside of the, the political situation in Northern Ireland and uh, and to hear me stumble slightly and uh, get caught out in uh, in a set of assumptions that I'd made so look forward to that. Now um, a couple of things as you know thanks everyone for your, your feedback about the Joe Caulfield episode last week if you've not caught up with that one then uh, do press, well it's not back is it it's sort of if you double tap the back icon twice from this one it should chuck up the most recent episode i don't know uh, what thing you're listening on and um, however that raises an interesting point i've mentioned on the show recently and frequently mentioned that um, it's very kind of you if you are able if you're unable to support the show financially or even if you are then you can go along to itunes or wherever else you get your podcasts and leave a review and that's all the more meaningful if your itunes is based outside of the uk as the, the review systems are different per country and um, however i have mentioned recently that if you're listening on android or some other platform please see if you can give me a review on that if you're enjoying the show and you'd like to contribute to helping keep it new and noteworthy on itunes or, or to keep it uh, visible in whatever other podcast apps versions of that are um, that would be really useful it's very very helpful in making the show visible as uh, as came up in conversation recently with someone who was asking about the sort of the download stats and the, the relative uh, profile of this show um, now that so many radio shows and hugely famous people are producing uh, their own shows uh, I mean specifically radio channels that's what I mean it's kind of TV and radio channels are podcasting their existing content. It's very hard for a little show like mine to to graze the uh, the charts. So anything that you can help me to do to keep this show 
to keep the profile raised is enormously appreciated. If you are feeling flush or you are, uh, you're in a position to and you'd like to, now is as good a time as any to donate to the show, either with a recurring subscription payment at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate or a one-off payment if you're so inclined. And thank you to the one or two people who recently, it's been there's been a bit of a dearth and then every so often someone drops an absolute bomb on me. So thank you very much to those of you, uh, one or two people who've done that recently. And if you would like something for your money rather than the, the frisson of sheer altruism, you can also remember all through October, you can go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash merch and you can purchase your thanks man t-shirt that is only throughout october and then the sale will close and they will no longer be available except possibly in person i might chuck out some extra ones for me to carry around to gigs on the tour now listen the tour is getting launched pretty soon this uh, in fact by the time you hear this it may already have been launched i'm sorry i can't quite sync up the the recordings and uh, and the official uh, online sales for my show and but the show that was, I'm very pleased to say, was reviewed as one of the top 20 best reviewed shows at Edinburgh. I know reviews are meaningless, but come on, I've got, I got a shift units, right? Um, uh, the show is called Like I Mean It. It's the show I took to Edinburgh this year. It's my best. I was listening to, compared to what, last year's tour, uh, on the way uh, to where I am now. And I was listening to it and listening to a draft of the, the edit of it that we're going to be releasing later this year, hopefully in time for Christmas. Uh, and... This is the worst thing ever to admit. I was listening to it and laughing. I was listening to my own stuff and some bits that I've forgotten and thinking, oh, that is funny. Oh, well done, Stu. That is good. God, how much more self-involved and self-congratulatory can we be? However, something else I was sort of pleased in a funny way to think was, wow, this isn't even as good as the new show. So it's very, very exciting to be to be about to tour Like I Mean It, which is the show I took to Edinburgh this year, thanks to everyone that came along to see that. And it's going on tour and we're going to announce it to the mailing list and the Facebook group group and all the other places where you can connect with me and this podcast uh, and then by the time you hear this it's entirely possible that all of that stuff is now available at comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour with a complete rundown with lovely linky links of everywhere that you can buy tickets so i forget my original point but i think it was to do with um supporting the show and you guys being great so <laughs> that seems perfectly reasonable um uh, very excited about the oncoming tour. I'll be telling you more about that in due course. And I'll be telling you at the end of this show in the post Apple about a particularly amusing event uh, that happened to me during... Well, it was one of those moments when uh, real life and your act sync up and you go, oh God, what have I done? So listen out for that in the post Apple. Now let's get back to Mr. Tim McGarry. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
It's incredible because it, it seems to me that there's a parallel there between what you've just said and the way that in a in a in a landscape without guns and bombs and paramilitaries and, and violence and barbed wire and rubble, um, in an environment without that, that's very similar advice to advice I've been given about or that people have talked about on the show about writing topical material. You don't name the specific event because then if the if the material becomes about that event too closely, you can't use it again. Yeah. Whereas if you can take the essence of an event, then you can use it every time that event comes up in the news, yeah. which seems like an incredibly kind of cosseted sort of safe way in which to write comedy, which is a million miles away from the sharp end that, that you were in. Well, the sharp end's the live stuff, basically. I mean, you, by the time you get to radio or television, it's always, you know, it, it's always been over-edited and BBC people having a look at stuff and toning stuff down for you. You can get away with a lot more live, but you knew that. And by the time Paddy Keelty burst on the scene, it was similar, about a year or two after us, around about the same time, and he was doing stuff in the Empire uh, and swearing and saying bad words at the same time and also having a go at the paramilitaries. And he also, uh, you know, and was very good at it and getting massive crowds. So there was, there was clearly an appetite for this sort of thing. Politics, by the time you get to a show like Give My Head Peace, some people see that it's a very political show, and there was a lot of politics in it, and people outside Northern Ireland didn't get the sensibilities of it. Uh, we created these larger-than-life characters who were, who were cartoonish, you know, they were, you know, but also there was an essential truth to them. They did reflect people in Northern Ireland, and we just touched, a, for some reason, we just touched a raw nerve of kind of, a kind of F you to, to the paramilitaries and an F you to the outside world as well. This is also where people took a special pride in going, we're great at laughing at ourselves. Aren't we fantastic? Aren't we brilliant for laughing at ourselves? And the English don't get this and the Southern Irish don't get this. Aren't we brilliant? There was a little bit of that going on. Uh, but we were, we were able to, I, I think, say stuff, in it, but also comedy is a great vehicle for being able to say stuff that you can't say in any, through any other medium, that you can't say in a play, it'll look, come across as earnest and overwrought and all of that. You can get away with messages in comedy that you literally can't get away with any other format. And stand-up comedy, again, as I regard as, as kind of one of the purest forms of free speech that there is. Uh, that's why they, they don't have them in, you know, ISIS-controlled caliphates or North Korea. You don't have comedy clubs there. So... It is, it is one of those pure, raw forms of free speech that, that is to be valued, and it had a role to play in Northern Ireland. Well, I want to talk about your... your that sounded very worthy, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to you about your... About Where's your, my Nobel Peace Prize? <laughs> <laughs> about, your, about your solo stand-up. But I'm aware also that in, in putting together the, the picture of who you are and who you were before you were a full-time performer, I know you did a law degree... Where, where did that, and, and then worked as a lawyer yeah, for some yeah. years, whereabouts, did, was that whilst you were performing or in well, between? Damon and Michael and myself were all law, studying law, we were all law students and then became solicitors while we were doing the, this job part-time. So we got a big radio break in 91, we, we did a, our first radio series, Perforated Ulster, which won a Sony Award for the best radio show in the UK and all of that, and uh, we were all part-time at the same, so we were kind of working full-time, it's working full-time in discrim anti-discrimination law, believe it or not, I was working for the Fair Employment Commission fighting religious discrimination, and then the Equal Opportunities Commission fighting sex discrimination. So. Okay, and how long did you do that for? Whilst uh, eight or nine years, yeah. So okay. I, yeah, we didn't go, f I went full-time in 1996, so bloody hell, I was quite old, I was 32 then by the time I went full-time. Yeah, because that, that, and again, that seems like, I mean, everyone's sort of origin within comedy is very different, but the idea that you were that you were working, or not, well, not full-time, but you were working professionally, you were creating work professionally, winning awards, winning a Sony Award, and at the same time doing a job for a long time, like a, a serious heavy job, one would yeah. imagine that you had to 
you know, you had to devote it's yourself to. It's good for to. material, though. Yeah, really? <laughs> Especially the Fair Employment Commission. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know much about the Fair Employment Commission. For religious discrimination, can I tell you one very quick story? This, <laughs> this, might, this contains a word of bad language, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. This, this is absolutely true. Fair Employment Commission is uh, religious discrimination. Protestants used to discriminate in Catholics, and Catholics used to discriminate against okay. Protestants. And, and was to stop that sort of thing. And when I was in the Fair Employment Commission, there was a famous case where a man complained he'd been discriminated against because he was a Catholic. And he worked in an office. He was the only Catholic in the office. And he said, they make me do more photocopying. And they sent me down the shop more often than that. And I didn't get this promotion. But it was all a bit woolly and a bit vague. But because the Fair Employment Commission was quite new, it ended up in court. This thing ended up in court. It was a bit woolly. Guy starts his case in court. The lawyers go to him, listen, this isn't looking good. This is all a bit woolly. Is there anything else at all you can tell us that might help your case for religious discrimination? And bear in mind, this has gone on for about 18 months to two years. He says, well, there is something else. This might help my case. And he produced uh, what can only be described as a Jim will fix it badge. Gold Jim will fix it badge. and had a green, white and orange ribbon on it. And on the badge it said, his name, Finian Cunt of the Year. <laughs> 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 and the lawyers then said, thank you very much, took that down to the other side, got him compensation and all that. I said, why didn't you tell us? <laughs> that was the day he was going on to make me do more photocopy. What about the day they had the ceremony to make your finger? Oh, no, I didn't think that would be important. <laughs> <laughs> so your, your kind of, uh, your move into doing solo stand-up stuff were you doing solo stuff at the time because i know i mean or is it the kind of the one-man shows that you do was that no i kind of by accident and some of the sketches we we with the fill space we did bits of stand-up and damon and michael actually tried it as well but hated it and i quite liked it oh okay, okay. uh i genuinely liked it uh, it's a bit odd damon always said i i need a, i need a character you know a, a, you know and with the stand-up is you're, you're also a slight character as well but the, the reason why I got into stand-up was because, given my headpiece got massive, and I used to be asked to, you know, open rib, cut ribbons and open supermarkets and things, and then they'd hand you a mic and go, be funny, do your da routine. <laughs> oh, I just, I'm an actor, I need the script and all, you know, have to give me 20 minutes, it'll be fun. So it started from that, it did five or ten minutes, and then my agent used to get me sort of after-dinner speeches for 20 minutes, and I'm going, okay. oh, right, crap, what am I going to talk about for 20 minutes? That so is incredible. Developed from there. That's, a, that's so, a really weird way round. To yeah, no, I, no, stand, absolutely, you know, absolutely. Really, so I always feel, I, I mean, I do the blame game with the, the, the likes of Neil Delamere and Colin Murphy and Jacob Kidd. They're pure stand and they're brilliant stand-ups. And I'm always slightly, I've always said, and I'm not being false model, I couldn't do the job they do on the panel of the blame game. I'm better, I'm, I'm not a natural, and I have an act, and I can do 40 minutes, and I can do, an, I've written a couple of shows, I can do an hour and a half for you, but I'm not a club stand-up, and I'm not a guy who can go out and do, you know, I couldn't do 10 minutes, say, for instance, if the lights fucking didn't come on. <laughs> and does that... What is the difference, do you think, in your personality compared to people like uh, Murphy and Delamere? That's a very good question. Uh, I think because I, I, was, I, I, have, I have a real admiration for stand-ups like that uh, because I think, as I said, it is, it is a pure form of, of free speech uh, and they're, they're, their thoughts can go anywhere. I, I come from a background where, yeah, I'll be absolutely spontaneous, but give me half an hour and give me even the lads a few days and we'll write the script and we'll structure it and we'll have a beginning, middle and end and we'll have a subplot and we'll have a tie-up at the end. Uh, I, I think mentally, uh, I'm not sure if there's a huge difference. I think they they think quicker than than, uh, than I do because I come from an acting background or a writing background. And I think they, they think on their feet a lot quicker and they have more experience of doing the clubs and the circuits and seeing more comedians. Uh, I, I don't... I, 
I mean, as I say, I, I, I can do you an hour and a half. I can do you. I've done the show about Irish history, but you've seen the show. The show is very structured because it's yes. about Irish history, so it starts at the dawn of time and ends the day before yesterday. Yeah. But it's the beginning, middle, and end. Uh, but don't throw me in front of a crowd of people who are going to heckle me and stuff because I'll, I'll just tell them F off and I'm not be very good on my feet. That It seems to me that you're... I wonder, I wonder the extent to which that is that, that delineation between you and a pure stand-up really sort of exists in your head. And it's interesting that you mention like, oh, don't put me in front of people who might heckle. <laughs> because and it, the way you were quite animated when you were talking about it then <laughs> sort of suggests that, I mean, you know, in your role as the host on The Blame Game, you're very, very funny. You're as funny as any pure, in inverted commas, stand-up comedian. And I just wonder about why those why you might have drawn those lines for yourself as like, oh, I don't well, do that, I do that. Well, th- thank you very much for saying two things. First of all, I've got one writer who's a bloody brilliant writer who does help write gags for the Blame Game and sure. helped me write stuff. Sure, but a but, lot of... A lot of oh, no, no, absolutely. A lot of, those, a lot of those big panel shows have dozens of writers on them. But I, so, yeah, I, I, but I think I've, I've grown into that role. I've, I've become better as it, as it went along. And I was hired effectively for the Blame Game, basically, because I had been on the telly and had a bit of a higher profile than some of the other ones. I'm good at things like hosting things and chairing things and all like that, but I'm not as quick as, as those other guys and I'm not as pure as those other guys. Okay. okay. And so, I do admire them for that. I mean, I really genuinely admire them for that. And what kind of, when you're working with a writer, that's quite an interesting sort of perspective on talking to the host of a panel game. What kind of relationship do you have with your writer? Is it a case of working with someone? Is it a case of him writing gags for you and you deciding no, what suits he, your voice or not? He, uh, it's a perfect Because most comics don't like to talk about this. Yeah, I know most they're right. Most comics are cagey <laughs> and I'm really interested to hear a kind it's, of non-cagey it's perspective. It's funny because some, some stand-up comedians, including on the Blame Game, used to go, we're pure, we don't want any of that. Yeah. Don't give me any, any writers that, or any jokes that writers have written. Oh, I'm a pure. No, no, no. It doesn't work like that. Uh, with certain the Blame Game... My writer is brilliant because we, we, we basically give him four topics before the night before and he sends me literally hundreds of jokes and I can just eat them out. And he'll send me jokes that he knows are unusable as well and he's one of the best. So there's no sitting down in the same room or anything like that. Okay. He allows me to take whatever his joke is and mould it and change it or whatever. Or he'll have a wee line and go, well, that's, a, that's a good idea, I can do that as well. Okay. Uh, and then I have my own stuff as well. So I mean, a lot of it is mine, but he, he does provide, you know, the bases of a panic than it was to die or to have a heart attack in the morning it could still you know sure. there'd still be a few jokes there and do it but and he's he, he, my relationship he's it's perfect relationship because i i don't pay him the producer pays him <laughs> pays him but he's just he, he he's not precious he like a very good writer he goes look you have all those jokes if you want to bend them that's fine if you use 20 of them fantastic god imagine what that would be like <laughs> imagine what that would be like as a comic to have someone send you pages and pages of jokes <laughs> yeah, your happily nodding faces. Like, no, yeah, it is good. <laughs> that's partly the reason why I say I'm not. I'm not a pure stand-up, sure, sure. and uh, okay. I, I accept that. Uh, but then on the blame game, some of the comics then do accept. We do a headline round at the end, and the writer has written a lot of headlines for those boys as well. And you go, ah, I'm not as pure as you think, are you? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk then about the difference in in the process, or well, a wholly different process, when it comes to writing your one-man shows. So the one that I've seen you sent me, uh, the DVD of uh, Tim McGarry's Irish History Lesson, which, as he said, goes from the dawn of time until right up till now. So talk to me about how you wrote and how you prepared 
that kind of material. It's a very funny show. I really enjoyed watching it. And again, there was, I mean, it, it does have that element of like the animation in it that kind of like little sections of yeah. cartoons sort of like pointing up jokes, making things clearer. It is a really good introduction to Irish history. It actually functions as that. In, in, educational as well. Yeah, yeah well, it, I mean, it genuinely <laughs> is a little bit educational, yeah. <laughs> well, when it came out, there was a couple of tweets of the early days of Twitter and there were a couple of tweets about it and one guy wrote, uh, you know, watching Tim McGarry's Irish History List said, I learned more about Irish history in 40 minutes than I did in 14 years at school. And I thought to myself, that's fantastic. Must have come from a Protestant. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, viewers in the room will have appreciated the consummately professional way in which Mr. McGarry then dragged his his wine glass in a perfectly tight Uh, fashion. (laughs) I I, I was in the early days of Twitter, genuinely, and I got the best, the best critical review that I think I should put on a posters as well. This guy wrote, uh, watching Tim McGarry's Irish history lesson, not as shite as I thought it would be. <laughs> it's just a breath. Uh, but sorry, not avoiding your question. Uh, most of the Give My Head pieces written by three people, mm-hmm. Damon Quinn, Michael McDowell and myself. I then started to write bits and pieces on my own. I got a wee job in a program called Hearts and Minds where I had to write a 30-second topical piece as a taxi driver summarizing the news. Six gags, basically, in 35 seconds. So I had the discipline of every Wednesday night sitting down with the news and writing gags. Some of those gags were, were unusable. Some of them you could keep. Uh, I'd done more stand-up and bits and pieces and after-dinner speeches. So I had, you know, I, I, you know, worst came to the worst, even if you're writing an Irish history show and you're, you, you, you go blank, I'll still have 30 minutes of material. I could still talk for, for a bit. And then I start, well, what's the structure of an Irish history show? You've got a beginning, middle, and end. And I sit da- sat down and I wrote it, basically. And then, as I say, my co-writer, Paul Gamble, who's absolutely brilliant, uh, I'd say to him, look, here's where the structure, here's where I'm going, here's what I've got so far. I'm talking about, say, the Irish famine. Give me 10 jokes on the Irish famine. (laughs) (laughs) And he'd give me 20. Um, And he would give me some jokes, and we'd lose down, and then we'd we'd go over it. So we we did have a couple of meetings together, but it was quite unusual. I don't like writing with somebody else apart from the other two people in the group. And it's a lot of them. When we were quite successful in giving my head piece, you get producers and all say, can I come and watch you guys write? I'd love to sit in while you write. And you go, no, no. I can't have anybody else in the room. Where we have a special relationship that, you know, it, it just doesn't work. You can't have, have somebody sit down and walk, walk across their arms and watch you writing. It doesn't work like that. Uh, so lots of people always wanted to come in and watch us write and said, no, there's a dynamic there. That you just so, well, that's, I'm really fascinated by that dynamic and how it changes yeah. from, from different groups of writers. So what was, were there different roles that you yeah, filled in the still is. How, how does that Damon work? Quinn won't fucking type. Uh, he still <laughs> he never wrote it out. And we, I'm going back to the early day. We used to write them out by hand and then have them typewritten and stuff. Uh, so one of either Michael McDowell or myself is the, the, the writer down of the ideas. Uh, Damon Quinn used to be the pacer up and down. Uh, I'm now the pacer up and down. Uh, but we, we basically get an idea and we knock it about ourselves. Uh, somebody throws in a line. Somebody then comes on the back of that line and throws that and adds to that. Uh, then we read back what we've got and then we, we amend it or change it. And somebody goes, oh, that doesn't work. Let's go that way and all of that. Uh, and it, it's, it's a process that, that relies on three people who know each other very well and aren't afraid to throw out a line and have that line rejected and laughed at and told they're fucking stupid and it's wick. Uh, so we've had all our fuck you conversations and we've had all our you know uh, all our fallouts that you ever could about anything uh, and we trust each other you know and we kind of rely on each other so if somebody Demon Quinn said that the joke I'd written is the worst joke ever I would take him seriously <laughs> and he you know we'll discuss it and see whether it works or not uh, 
but but also it, it, it does it relies on I mean, the great thing of having three people is somebody can have an off day and we can still produce stuff. Mm-hmm. And also we were quite prolific in our day, and we could write an episode of Give Me a Head Piece, you know, full. Th- Five and a half thousand words is basically a, a TV script for thirty minutes. So sometimes you root over, you root over that, so you get a thirty-five minute script. So you maybe write six thousand words or something, including all the directions. We could write that if we had an idea. We could write that within a week, basically. That's incredible. Yeah. I've never done that. I should say it's the first time I've ever heard a script uh, give it a word limit. Oh no, absolutely. <laughs> word no, word count. count's vital. <laughs> the word count right? absolutely vital. Because if you write, if you overwrite, I mean, it'll get lost. So you do have to cut it down. Uh, yeah. If you get it right, five and a half thousand words, it's 180 words a minute, uh, including, you know, doors opening, man walks in door, says, hello, Stuart. Stuart shouts at the lighting man, da 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 da. That all counts as, as, as the second. But it, it, it's unerringly accurate. 5,400 words for 30 minutes. So if you're doing a sitcom, every word is more or less fatal, but there's no point writing 7,000 words and going in the edit room and having to cut 10 minutes out of it. That's yes, just, you, yes. you, you ruin the entire plot. <laughs> so I'm interested in the, those, the three characters of you, the writers in the room, the, the characters in, in inverted commas, of, um, and, and what drives you individually and how that drive is different amongst the, diff- the three of you. What drives us? Yeah. It's making a career, making some money. <laughs> Survive well. No, initially, initially it was fun. Initially, it was because we enjoyed it. Initially, it was because uh, I wouldn't say we had a mission or anything, but we thought, yeah, we're 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 quite good at this. <laughs> after Edinburgh, after we got the Edinburgh show, we went back the next year with a show called Everything You Wanted to Know About Northern Ireland, but we're too terrorised to ask, and we <laughs> we sold out for two weeks in the Edinburgh Festival Club, and we're a lot better. We weren't brilliant, but we got a lot better, and we experienced and going right this. And the three of us, we. It took a long time because we were quite successful on radio. We'd done bits and pieces. We'd have an agent who put us around the country and we'd done the shows. We weren't making an awful lot of money. In fact, we were making very little money, but we thought, you know, let's, let's have a go at this. Let's, uh, I had the advantage and, uh, my colleague Michael McDowell had the advantage that we were working in, uh, I was working in the Equal Opportunities Commission, which was a quango. It was, it was a government job. I could take a career break. So we thought, right, well, let's, let's go for it. Let's go for this. So on the 1st of April, uh, 1996, we all gave up our jobs and said, right, let's try and get more radio and television. Let's try and make a break of it. Uh, and that motivation is basically to, to make, well, uh, we've, we've produced a lot of stuff that we're really, really proud of. And the thing is, we've also done, we've also been able to diversify. We've done serious dramas and we've done documentaries and we do a program called Pop Goes Northern Iron, which is an archive show about the troubles and stuff like that. And I think we, we have the same sensibility. We all come from a legal background. Uh, and we all have the, uh, you know, and we're all of, of a certain age. We're all born within three months of each other, you know. So we're, we don't live in each other's pockets, by the way. In fact, to be honest with you, I never socialize when they're born bastards. You can like them. Uh, <laughs> but we have this thing. We, we, we can just sit down in a room and go, right, what do we need to write? We need to write a script about. We, we, got, we got a wee gig recently, you know, to write a script about for a, for a hospital uh, that wanted a, a wee promotional video done, you know, about uh, patients or patient visiting people, uh, visitors visiting patients. We go, right, let's sit down and write this. Blah, blah, blah. And we just immediately into the rules of, you know, I open my laptop and Damon goes, right, what about X? And Michael goes, what about Y? Start the dialogue and away we go. So what is it, do you think that, I don't want to use the word drives again, but in terms of your pretty prodigious output across the fields of hosting a panel show, working in, you know, writing sketches, performing sketches, performing stand-up, performing one-man shows, it does seem like you're one of, would you describe yourself as a workaholic? 
Oh God, no, no, I'm a lazy sod. I don't like working. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you don't I, sound I, like somebody who doesn't no, like working. I, and I'm also aware that often workaholics go, "Oh no, I'm really lazy. That's why I have to push myself." Uh, no, I wouldn't describe. I mean, writers don't like. I write. Writers don't like writing. Uh, and I'll take as many holidays as you as you'll give me. Uh, but I do like. I do like. Producing, I do like that the blame game's just a joy to do, and it takes about a day and a half. Sitcom, give me a head piece, which has bizarrely just been recommissioned to do a few more episodes after a gap of 10 years we're doing. So it's kind of a joy to, to, to do that again. It's just been recommissioned. Just been just recommissioned, okay. literally recommissioned. Um, in fact, signing, literally signing the contract tomorrow for three new episodes. Oh my God, great. Uh, uh, and that, it's just kind of a joy to bring something like that back. I, I, I'm very lucky, and I've, I've got a nice variety of stuff. And I also do stuff outside comedy as well. As I say, I do a wee history show with an orange man called David Hume called The Long and the Short of It, because I'm six foot four and he's definitely not. And uh, we go around and discuss bits of Irish history. So I've got all sorts of a few irons in the fire, which is kind of... Because the variety is, is the thing. When we first started, we, we, did a, we were involved in a show called The Show, which was highly controversial in Belfast in 1989. It was a live show. It was a live chat and sketch show and we wrote about two or three of the sketches and it uh, it caused a real proper fuss here because they uh, the first sketch was uh, that we hadn't written uh, was about uh, a Paisley type character who said he was from the fundamentalist United Church of Carnality and he stripped off and stuff and it was clearly a pastiche of Ian Paisley it was followed by a woman an American woman singing a song called Baby Should I Have the Abortion or Not and then it got worse after that <laughs> this is 1989 in Belfast in Northern Ireland and nothing like this had been seen and there was a huge outcry of what the hell this is the worst of the world the show it was called the show it was actually quite advanced for its time and did very well later but it was called the show there was literally you know questions asked in Parliament about this bloody thing and we, I can't remember my point. Where was I talking about? <laughs> we'd, we'd written some sketches for that. And then we developed from that and go, we'd have thought, because we'd written for actors. And we'd have thought, well, the actors aren't doing quite what we wanted. You know, they aren't, as, you know, they aren't quite getting the, the gag where it's supposed to be. So we started performing the jokes that we'd given to other people, professional actors, and doing them ourselves. And going, actually, we're, we're better. We're getting more laughs than they would get from that. And with that kind of... I'm struggling to imagine what it must be like, I suppose, as an outsider, trying to get a sense of the the kind of the cultural rhythm of growing up in Northern Ireland with such an emphasis on religion and one of the... Um, uh, in, in one of the, the shows, I forget which one, one of the, your documentaries about Ulster Scots, when the beginning of your documentary series oh, right. about uh, Ulster Scots, you talk about growing up in Northern Ireland and having people ask, what are you? Yeah. You know, with, without inquiry, I think I forget what the line was. They're on a massacre now, you know, without, yeah. they're not asking about, you know, yeah. your oh, ambitions. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What are you? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm just sort of trying to get a sense of, the extent to which... I can't even open a bottle of water. Thank you what? very much. Very kind. What an incredibly <laughs> kind <you>. gesture <laughs> for a lady to Give that lady a round of applause. Thank you very much. And assist you opening a bottle of water. <laughs> you win a bottle of Buckfast tonic wine. <laughs> um, to get a sense of the, um, the, the pressure release that you get from comedy. To get a sense of the... Um, the, the cultural conditions under which you were operating as a society. I'm, I'm losing myself in my yeah, question. Do you, see, do you sort of no, see where I'm going? You're getting what I would call wanky. 
I think a lot of, it's kind of the view of the outsiders as well, because we used to get, when giving a headpiece was massive, I remember going to Dublin, and there were people going, there a woman literally grabbed me by the hand and went, you're so brave, well done you. And then she looked around as if she was going up a shot for speaking yeah. a bit, and ran off, going, he makes jokes about the troubles. And it wasn't kind of like that. I mean, the troubles were awful and terrible, and they, they kind of suffused everything in politics, and they sucked the life out of it. But people still got home with their lives. People still, you know, we still watched, you know, the, the programs that everybody in the rest of the UK watched. Uh, so what we did was, was we, we, the, the simple thing that we tapped on was being honest about what, we're, what we were talking about, uh, uh, what was funny to us and what amused us and what amused us and what amused people in Northern Ireland was some of the aspects of our life in Northern Ireland that, that had been ignored here up to then. But comedy itself, I mean, comedy itself is very valuable and is a huge release and was a huge release. And so a lot of people do genuinely go, thank you very much, you, you made us laugh during the troubles. And you go, well, you know, I was having a ball too, you know, so don't worry about it. You know, I don't need to be thanked. You know, a wee Nobel Prize or whatever. But, you know, the... Uh, I, 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 don't th- I don't think we, we deserve gratitude or anything, but some people do go, oh, you were so important. Oh, you were sure. brilliant. You, you made us laugh at ourselves, and you made Protestants and Catholics laugh at each other. And, all. and yes, we're still a horrible sectarian society, even though the schools are bloody divided here. You know, half the people, people were thrown out of their houses this week for being the wrong religion. You know, they're, 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 they're still dividing walls in this society. So it does, it suffuses everything. But there's more to life than that. Uh, I, I sometimes regard, you know, the, the sectarian issue here, and some people would accuse us of, you know, making money out of the sectarian issue or making money out of the troubles, you know. I regard it as kind of like, you know, black comedians talking about racism or ordinary comedians talking about men and women. It's just part of life here, and you just talk about it and be honest about it. And do you... I think that's a... Re- that, thank you, that's a really good answer. I'm sorry to be wanky, but I think that actually... I think that actually got a, <laughs> me stumbling into that trap it effectively got the answer I was looking yep. for because it isn't just it isn't about a kind of a hand wringing no no because that won't work here and I mean you have to be honest that's one of the nicest compliments we got of give me a head piece was they they are they genuinely are they're, they're larger than life characters you've seen they're, they're, they're cartoonish characters but there's a couple of people said you know, the thing about that there's a grain of truth in these people these people are you know exaggerations of you know, characters, but there, there are true people, there are people like Uncle Andy, and we took sectarianism, and we made a horrible sectarian character, but we made him slightly lovable, yeah. <laughs> ridiculous, but lovable, yeah. Yeah. we took Sinn Féin character Da, who was close to the thinking of murderers in the IRA, and we made him slightly idiotic, but also real, but also human, and seeing the other side as, as being human, well, you know, there's, there's some value in that, because up to then, you know, people hadn't done that, but, you know, and certainly in comedy terms, but... I mean, that, if that was, you know, that, that was kind of all we'd done, really. I suppose probably the, the wankiness that I was suffering from is to do with the fact that as, a, as an outsider, all of the cultural output that we see, that I see, about Northern yeah. Ireland is exactly that sort of stuff that you were pastiching. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's part of it. As I say, Northern Ireland, some people in Northern Ireland go, oh, we've a great sense of humor. Aren't we brilliant? We're our sense of humor is fantastic. And you go, well, not really. I mean, Scousers think they have the best sense of humor and Yorkshire men think they have the best sense of humor. What we have here is a unique experience, a unique shared experience. And despite a very divided society, we are, I mean, Northern Ireland's quite good at giving the fingers to the Brits and the English and the, and the south of Ireland as well, and go, Northern Ireland is a unique entity. And, you know, we were happened to be a, a big fish in a small pond, but, I mean, it's only a society of 1.8 million, so why should it be relevant to people like yourselves and the rest of the UK? Did you... You mentioned earlier on in the dressing room that you hadn't travelled or that you hadn't no. worked much outside of... We, we've done some stuff for Radio 4, and we... Jimmy Moir, God bless him, and Radio 2, give us a few series on Radio 2. Uh, but no, I don't do the circuit in Britain or anything like that because I don't need to. <laughs> I don't mean that, and you know, I'm loaded. I don't. I, 
don't, I don't need to. <laughs> and is that presumably to... you don't want to? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't say where I do a jongler's in Nottingham on a cheat. You know, no, 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 of course I don't not. mean that in a bad, no, I don't mean that as in, you know, I'm doing so well that, you know, I don't need a job. But it's not my ambition to be a club comedian and then go up that, because where is there for me to go in, in the UK? I mean, I'm, I'm doing very well and doing it. I'm making, uh, I'm making radio shows and TV shows that I'm really proud of here and, uh, and I'm enjoying myself. And is there anything that, you, and we must wrap up fairly soon, but is there anything that you have not worked on that you want to as someone who has a, a real breadth of uh, of output from your documentaries other projects like that are there any kind of pet projects that you that you've never been able to get off the ground that you think one day i'm going to do that one there's no commissioners in tonight so there's nobody point me uh, no uh, not, not particularly no i mean i as i say i genuinely been very very lucky we struck a chord with give me a headpiece we genuinely struck a chord and it's an unusual program in that it wasn't on television for 10 years, but there wasn't a day that went past that people didn't stop me and go, all right, uh, where's Uncle Andy? You, great. Literally every single day. And that was one of those programs that got into people's hearts. I don't know how or why or whatever, but it was one of those things. There was a guy on, on the Blame Game once, a radio guy, who, uh, I can't, uh, this terrible thing to say, I don't remember his name. He did warm-up for Mrs. Brown's Boys. And he told me the success of Mrs. Brown's boys, he says, is, he said, I wasn't a huge fan before he did warm-up. They are the nicest people in the world. They made me the warm-up. You know the story of a warm-up man. You're the shit at the bottom of somebody's shoe. You're in the corner and nobody cares about you. He said, I was made to feel like part of a team. I was made to have met everybody that shook my hand and said I was great. So they've created an atmosphere in that program that is just infectious. They're having a ball. They're having a laugh. They're enjoying themselves. That comes across to the audience. And the audience then bring that to the TV audience. And we slightly, we succeeded in doing something similar with Give Me a Headpiece. We enjoy it. We have a ball. It's one of the nicest things to do. Once the hardest bit is writing the script, once the script's done, going out and doing it, it's just brilliant. Just brilliant. And same with the live. We do Give Me a Headpiece live as well every year. We do a tour all around Northern Ireland, do 10 days or 10 shows in the Opera House in Belfast. And once it's up and running, there's nothing, there's no, no better experience. I do a bit of stand-up in the middle of 20, 25 minutes. And you know yourself as a stand-up. If you've got a half-hour material and you go out and a thousand people are there and you tell the first joke and it goes down a storm and you go, ah, wait to the one that's coming two minutes from now. <laughs> oh, you think that's good. This is going to get even better. There's no better feeling. Something I often like asking my guests toward the end of the show is about whether or not they're happy. You seem pretty happy. Are there any, are there any downsides to your work? Are there any downsides to the... the to, creativity when you talk about the moments of writing that's the hardest bit is it ever a struggle do you ever suffer from those moments when you think am i doing the right thing uh, I, i'm happy am i happy yes <laughs> can i tell you about my sex life <laughs> <laughs> uh, no I, I i'm genuinely yeah I, i'm content the, the trouble with northern ireland is northern ireland's very small and there's really only one uh one company you can pitch to here which is the bbc utv don't make programs on the grounds that might cost them money. Um, <laughs> genuine radio, all st- or sorry, uh, radio stations. Some of the commercial stations will pay for comedy. So, you're, 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 if you want to start comedy here, there's a bigger circuit now. There didn't used to be a circuit at all. Jackie Hamilton, God bless him, started the Empire Comedy Club 25 years ago, and there's that thread, and that's got bigger, and there are more clubs now, and there are more younger comedians coming up. Uh, but there is, there's literally, if, if you're going to stay in Northern Ireland, there literally is only one one uh, organisation you can go to, which is the BBC, and there's literally only two or three people there in the BBC that you end up 
pitching your stuff to, and they have a, a disproportionate influence, perhaps, on some of the stuff. Now, they've been really, really good to us, and I, as I say, I've made a career out of it for 20 years, uh, but I could see where that would be limiting, and I see why if other comedians, particularly from Northern Ireland, go, we, we need to get out of here. We need to go bigger. Uh, I was lucky enough, and myself, we were three of us in the Hole in the Wall gang. We diversified. That's the other thing. Never think you go, I only do one thing, and that's it. That was the lesson we learned very early on. When we did the show, we wrote sketches, and I remember sending them on a video to an agent in London going, we're brilliant. We did those sketches. Hey, God love them. They had no idea what the fuck they So I remember Caroline Chigwell, I think, is the agent in London. Yes, yeah, yeah. Caroline Chig- and she must have gone, what the Oh, this guy's talking about terrorism and stuff. And, uh, and we thought, well, we've written sketches for a TV show. We'll sit back and wait till the phone rings there. <laughs> then we won the Sony Award for the best radio show. But we'll sit back now. This is definitely the moment the ring phone will ring. doesn't happen. You've got to keep at it. You've got to keep working. And you've got to diversify. And you've got to go, right, uh, you, don't want the, you don't want a sketch. Do you want a, do you want a sitcom? Right, we'll write you a sitcom. You don't want a sitcom? Okay, listen, okay. We're... Got six months free here. We're better ready to stay you and go on tour and stuff like that. You just got to keep on it. In terms of the newer comics that are coming out of Northern Ireland at the moment, um, I suppose I, I would imagine that, given the troubles are no longer what they were, that your the the area of your specialisation is less relevant now than it was. Do you get a sense of that? Uh, yes, but that's been a gradual, ongoing process since the mid-90s. I mean, I remember when the first IRA ceasefire happened in 1994. People stopped me in the street and said, oh, how much you out of work now, mate? <laughs> <laughs> and here we are 23 years later. I think for the younger comics coming up, yeah, it's still less, it's, it's less relevant. But if you're playing to Northern Ireland audiences, there are, you know, there are touch points and touchstones that will always be relevant. Uh, and... I think, you know, they don't have as much kudos when you go to England and say you're from Northern Ireland, they're not scared of you anymore and all that sort of stuff. But that was only a few gags anyway, and then people had to get into their, their routines, you know. So, I, I mean, from, from Northern Ireland, we, we are, we're, def, we're definitely an improving society. And the, the politicians, though, are still giving us and giving me plenty of material, and long may they continue to do so. <laughs> An oddly negative, optimistic, pessimistic <laughs> note. <laughs> um, any, if there are any questions, we can ask one. If not, then oh, over there. Yeah, the BBC now are very sensitive, uh, and they always were. They were very concerned uh, with giving my head peace in the early days. They were very concerned that it was fair and balanced, because the worst thing that can happen in Northern Ireland is one community goes, that's anti-Protestant, or that's anti-Catholic, and that would have... Part of the... the, the I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, but when, when we were starting off, and the English journalists used to come over and they go, well, how many Catholics and how many Protestants are in the group, and all of that? And it's a terrible thing to say. We were probably three atheists, but there were two Catholic atheists and a Protestant atheist. And the, the Protestant atheist really helped, because it meant that we weren't from perceived as coming from one side and having a, a sense of balance. I mean, again, the, the Beeb the were quite sensitive. It actually got worse. The Beeb were, were quite sensitive, but they had a script editor. A script, our script editor, by the way, she did very quick. Oh, I'm two ceasefires in a wedding and give me a headpiece. There's a man called Niall Leonard. Uh, you might not have heard of Niall Leonard. Uh, Niall Leonard is married to Erica Leonard James. You've heard of Erica Leonard James? I don't think I have. Yeah, I think you have. She wrote Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, right. Oh, wow. E.L. Yeah. yeah, gotcha. <laughs> now Leonard is from Newry. Now Leonard wrote some of the best gags. We <laughs> were on, on two ceasefires in a wedding. He wrote three gags that are, that are 
still, you know, 25 years later, people still talked about. It's famous one of the policeman, Billy the Peelers, up on Cave Hill with Emer, the, the girlfriend, and they're, they're snogging away on the top of Cave Hill. And Billy, uh, uh, Emer stops and says, by the way, Billy, do you not think you should be wearing some protection? And Billy the Peeler goes right enough, and then he puts on his flak jacket, <laughs> which is a very local <laughs> reference to the Peeler. Yeah, yeah, sure. uh, and that was Niall Leonard, from, from, uh, who then went on. He was a script editor here in BBC North, and he's from Newry, and then he went on to be very fair. But he was, again, he was part of the process of keeping the BBC right, because he was a BBC script editor, and he had done dramas and stuff before. So they, they build in layers of protection for themselves. They have a script editor. They have a they have a, a, a an overall editor as well. They have an executive producer to go through the script and say, well, what's likely to cause trouble here? It's actually got worse now. I find even on radio and stuff, it's got worse because of Twitter, and you know, because people give you instant reaction, and they're so crap scared now of anybody complaining about anything that they they preempt that. So we're doing a sketch show at the moment, perforated Ulster, and you know, it, it, sometimes you find that jokes that you thought you know would have you would have got away with ten years ago, you're not getting away with on air now, which is kind of worrying. And you think that's because the because of the immediate I, reaction I think, means that people get cold feet. I think faster. I think people have a more complaining culture because of Twitter and stuff, and the, you know, because it, it used to in the old days it used to take time. You had to write a letter and sit down and dear sir, dear BBC, what Tim McGarry said was disgraceful. And by the time you came to the end of the, I went fucking never mind. Now you just now you just, <laughs> now you just go. <laughs> the Tim McGarry was as shite as I thought he would be, <laughs> uh, and it goes off, and the BBC have to react to that. And I think they're 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 more guarded and protective now. now having said that, they've been. I mean, uh, been slightly unfair. The BBC have been very, very good to us. And once the first series of Give Me a Head Peace went out, they started to trust us and say, well, you know where the lines are. And we did know for having done it live, we knew where the lines you do not cross, you do not annoy an audience on this, where you can offend an audience and where you know you can push an audience. So you just know those lines just by doing it. So um, I don't feel at all that you've slagged the BBC off, um, <laughs> but uh, I will wait until the contract's signed tomorrow before I release the episode. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Mr. Tim McGarry. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Tim. Cheers. Thanks a lot. So that was Tim. And hey, while I remember, of course, thank you to Tim and John and everyone else at Belfast Comedy Festival for coming along. Uh, do check out Tim's show. You can buy the DVD of uh, Tim McGarry's Irish History Lesson online and wherever else you buy your online DVDs. It's very funny and well worth a look. Um, so do that and you can find him on Twitter and in all the usual places. So thanks to everyone connected with making that happen. And while I remember, let's just take a minute to consider the classic, the greatest comedy club in God's own country, New Zealand, a dearly beloved place uh, to me and many millions of com- hundreds of comics, thousands, probably, I'm, I'm sure thousands. Um, the classic is celebrating 20 years of its existence uh, this October or Mocktober, as they're calling it. You can find out more about that by looking for the Classic Comedy Club on Facebook uh, or online. If you are a, a purveyor of uh, comedy in the Southern Hemisphere, I'm sure you have uh, visited that place before. If you haven't, please do get along. It is no secret that uh, Scott Blanks, the guy that runs the Classic, is basically who I want to be when I grow up, <laughs> without without me taking any of the steps to become him, such as running a comedy club or indeed living in New Zealand. 
Ah, oh, would that I could. So uh, congratulations, my warmest congratulations to Scott. And uh, Scott, you, if you don't know him, is uh, a fabulous old coot who likes to sit on Facebook taking pot shots at people on the other side of the world uh, when it's late at night for him and early in the morning for us. So he's worth befriending simply on that basis. <laughs> There's a tremendous amount of fun to be had there. Um, and uh, I just want to wish Scott and everybody at the Classic uh, a very happy birthday. And I'm really thrilled that you're celebrating in this fabulous way loads and loads of shows there if you do happen to be listening in Auckland or anywhere else in New Zealand do get along and help them celebrate happy birthday to you sunshine so that is uh, everything remember comedianscomedian.com forward slash merch for your t-shirts only this month forward slash donate to support the show with a recurring or a one-off payment and forward slash tour if you would like to find out the tour dates which will almost certainly nearly all be live by the time you hear this and then I'll do a big fanfare about it and tell you a bit more about the show next time hang around for the post amble and a slightly embarrassing story other than that thanks for listening and I'll speak to you next week so do I always start this by going so I feel like I always take a deep breath Oh, I'm going to kind of relax into it. So nice to uh, make your aural acquaintance once again. And we all have to pronounce, I believe it's actually pronounced oral acquaintance, isn't it? A-U-R-A-L. But you just have to be careful. <laughs> so um, I was staying, I did some lovely gigs at the weekend. I did some fascinating, oh my God. I recorded a, a show that I did in Saltburn by Sea. Saltburn on Sea or by Sea. Um, and uh, I had a fun gig there. I don't know if I was everyone's cup of tea, but I enjoyed myself. And then about 20 minutes into a 30-minute set, uh, I had a protracted war with a heckler who heckled by shouting, what are you talking about? You've been talking and talking, but what are you talking about? And it was such a, a kind of an affront to the show. And I, I, I think I sort of dealt with him as well as I've dealt with anyone. I got a couple of... I had Tom Gleason in the back of my mind as I, as I, I made sure I didn't leave him alone until I got a round of applause. And, and, uh, and it was really fun to grow grapple with such an such a kind of a stone wall of like I don't understand this I, I really enjoyed that and I might make that little recording available as some sort of easter egg or an extra on uh, on the the tour album as and when it comes out um but uh, so really good fun a great weekend of gigs thanks to everyone that came along to all of those and I also did a gig in Nairsborough at the Fraser Theatre, which is loads of fun and the sort of lovely community-run kind of project that you wish you lived next door to so that you could just chuck shows on up there all the time. Um, chuck shows on up there. Yes, that's chuck shows on at there. Ah, chuck them up there. Anyway, the point is that um, that night I travelled back and stayed in Harriet in an Airbnb. Now, if you are a listener to my stand-up material or if you've seen me live in the last couple of years, you might have seen my bit about Airbnb. It's available on YouTube if you search Stuart Goldsmith Airbnb or Stuart Goldsmith Melbourne Gala 2017. Um, and it's, uh, it's a little tight little nugget a tight little nugget of stand-up and um basically the gist of the bit is all the fun you can have in someone else's home once they've trusted you to live in their home briefly airbnb that's the angle i took there's some lovely jokes in there i very much enjoy doing it but the 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 angle is definitely mischievous and here's the fun here's the illegal fun you can have in someone else's home 
I then stayed in an Airbnb, and because I was arriving so late after my gig, I wasn't going to get there till way past the usual checkout. I check in. I said in my introductory message on Airbnb, I'm a comedian, I'm performing at so-and-so. Of course, my name is attached to the Airbnb thing. She Googled me, looked at me on YouTube, the, the owner of this place, and of course, the first, she, first thing she found was me talking about all the illegal shit I was going to get up to in her house. And it never occurred to me, I didn't see her that evening, she left a care for me, I got in, I slept, I got up, and then I saw her in the very brief in the morning before I left. Hello, Charlie. Um, I saw her in the morning and um, and she revealed that she had, in fact, Googled me. And she's very carefully measured out the information of like, oh, of course I Googled you. And I was like, oh, oh, right. Because you don't like to you don't like to reveal too much of yourself, right? You don't want to think that it's like, I don't know. Imagine if you're going on a date with someone, a first date, and they know who you are and are able to Google things you've done. That's kind of weird. So, I mean, I'm sure that's what. That's what all the kids are at. All the datas are at these days. I've got no idea. Um, and so, in a very measured kind of way, she said, "I saw you on. I saw you were a comedian. I looked you up online. I saw some of your stuff on YouTube. And it just no. I'm lying. It didn't start dawning on me until she said, and your stuff about Airbnb. And even then, there were probably a couple of seconds where I went, oh yeah, sure. Oh yes, that's the relationship we're currently in. <laughs> so that was. Um, uh, she dealt with it very well. It could have been dealt with much worse by both of us. So thank you, Charlie. And uh, I absolutely promise that I didn't uh, do any of the naughty things I talk about in that bit of material, which you can check out on YouTube if you're so inclined. Um, That will do us for now because I've got to run off and do a show. Um, Lots more stuff on the tour coming soon. And... Yeah, I had a really fun, like a really full-on weekend of driving and gigging, and then some time at home, which I've just valued so much. Not not to not to wang on about the boy, but um, oh god, he's priceless. Oh my god, he started singing Manu Manu. I wondered if this might turn into a bit of stand-up, but he started singing Manu Manu, and so I sing it to him a lot. You know the the Muppets thing. Hey, here's a good pub trivia question: Spell Manu Manu. It's not what I expected, um, and. Uh, and so you get halfway through singing Manu Manu do, 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 and he's laughing and you sing Manu Manu do, 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 and he's laughing and then he walks off and then you're there on your own like he leaves the room and then you're there in the room going you can't not finish the song <laughs> so suddenly you're on your own in a room going Manu Manu and so part of you is feeling like I should just let the song die or just speed through it and then as you're speeding through it part of me thought this happened two days ago part of me thought no I'm going to bloody give it my all so I ended up he left and I went can canning around the kitchen like an absolute plum bye for now Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.